0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church Podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Have any of you ever you know purchased something from like Amazon Prime or IKEA, you know, like a, a toy or a piece of furniture that comes unassembled? And I, I I get I often do that, I get stuff online and I say, oh, I didn't realize this was unassembled, or you know, and when I get the box and I open the box up and there's like hundreds, it seems like hundreds of parts. And you, and you so you start spreading this parts out on the room around the room. And you look at the directions and you look at the parts and you look at the directions and pretty soon you say, I think this is going to be a little bit more difficult than I thought. And, I've, I've, and so what do you do? You, know, you just go ahead and plunge through it you know, and you end up building something that looks pretty good except at the end what often happens, you end up with all these leftover parts. And so you scratch your head and say, these don't look like they belong anywhere. Anywhere. And so what do you do? You do like I do, is you, you throw them in a, the junk drawer, thinking that someday you're going to use these parts, right? Anyway, as I was thinking about today's passage that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2, I was kind of feeling the same thing. I was thinking, you know, this is these directions, so to speak, are, are quite difficult. There's a lot of parts to them. And how am I ever going to structure a sermon around them? It's very, very difficult to structure a sermon around these particular uh, verses. And and just as I thought, is that similar to putting together a project, I, I ended up with a lot of loose pieces that I didn't really know what to do. And the to, to top it all off, I'm talking about a topic or a subject that can be very kind of touchy for some. And if I don't navigate it well, I could have some people very angry, especially some of the women in the audience to the point they might start throwing things at me like they did in the first service, right? But hey, that's why I get paid the big bucks, right? So that's what I do. Anyway, we're doing a series called Elephants in the Church, and we know that an elephant in a room is kind of an uncomfortable topic, you know, that people know is there, but they just don't want to talk about it. And the elephant in the church is the same thing, you know. It's, a, it's an idea that there's certain topics in the church that just seem a little bit taboo. Nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody knows they're there, but just people just as soon avoid but again, we know as a healthy church, a healthy church does not avoid those elephants in the church. What we learned from the Apostle Paul is that we learned to tame those elephants. And fortunately, the Apostle Paul left us a very nice guidebook, 1 Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthian church on how to pretty much tame or deal with these elephants. Now last week Austin preached and he talked about the elephant in the room of Christian freedom. And the idea that, you know, that there's certain things that Christians are a lot of things, really, that Christians are permitted to do, and he included things like, you know, eating food that might be taboo in another country or another particular uh, religion. He talked about the idea of of having a glass of wine or a, a glass of beer occasionally, and he also talked about reading some books like Harry Potter. He said, you know, those things are all permissible, but he also said that those things are permissible, but they might not always be advisable. In other words, that we might be willing to, or we should be willing to abstain from those things for the sake of others, out of the love for a brother or sister in Christ who, when we do those, might cause them to stumble. Anyway, so Paul's kind of continuing this idea of of freedom and uh, be willing to uh, restrict yourself in, in, in certain things that are permissible. At this time, he's talking that topic of freedom, and he's addressing what he would call some behavior issues in the church particularly that there's some women in the church that seems to be getting a little bit too radical about some particular things and having an attitude, and it's causing disruption not only in the church but in the surrounding community. Anyway, we're going to look at a rather lengthy passage. Again, it's going to start at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. So I'm going to put it on the screen, and I'll read through it if I can see it okay, and you can read along or, or just uh, look in your Bibles there. Paul writes, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, uh, she should cover her head. Going on. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Just for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, if anybody wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I told you this is a tough one. A lot of stuff here. You know, and again, as we talked about last week, when you encounter a passage like this or like... Austin had a deal with last week, with the whole idea of eating food sacrificed to idols. You just as soon just kind of pass it by and say, listen, this, this isn't relevant for today. This has no application for today. It's nice history, but just read on pass it. But really, again, we believe that all Scripture is useful, and if we, if we take the time to maybe go through a little bit of it, a little bit of it we might find or leave with a, at least a few principles that we might be able to apply, and that's what I'm going to try to do today. But before I dig into the passage a little deeper, I want to talk about this background of uh, uh, this idea of head coverings. Uh, Head coverings again would be something in in the first century that women would wear, uh, like a a veil or a scarf or or a shawl or something that would cover, again, most of her most of her face. And uh, you know, just like is today in the Mediterranean culture, you know, women were a source of temptation to men. So the idea that if a woman would cover her face and her and her hair that that would minimize the temptation to men. But more than that, it was actually symbolize something. It would symbolize that this woman belongs to somebody, that you know she is married, that she has a husband. In fact, to appear in public without the hair covering would basically say, hey, this woman is you know, possibly cheating her husband. She's uh, being unfaithful. She's a little bit loose. That would be the idea that would come across. And that's why, you know, single woman or prostitutes that were looking for a husband or a maid of some sort, that they wouldn't wear head coverings. So that was generally what was going on. And then you have this new thing that's kind of introduced into the culture called Christianity. Christianity comes along and you've got this new kind of new breed of woman that's very kind of independent, kind of pushes against the the boundaries, acceptable boundaries of culture, and even stops wearing the traditional head covering. Now, some of these women actually ended up even being, they were wealthy, a lot of these women were wealthy, and they would actually be the host of some of these house churches, kind of like we think about a modern D.C. community. They would be the host of a house. And so, again, you have this new breed of women that were being very independent, and the problem was it began to cause a little bit of problem within the church and outside of the church caused a little bit of disruption. And so Paul, like he did with the other stuff that we've been reading about, the other elephants in the room, he had to address it. Now you may ask, well, why all of a sudden? Why all of a sudden did, did women you know, decide to just kind of go against the cultural norms and experience kind of this rebellious attitude? And really the simple answer, answer is the gospel. Again, the gospel is a gospel of freedom. The gospel is often talked about, again, it's something that, that just frees you from the burdens from slavery, not only to sin, but a lot of the rules and regulations that the first century or the earlier Jewish uh, people had to deal with. And so these women, you know, all of a sudden they get a, they get a taste of the gospel and the freedom that comes with it. And so they decide, well, why can't we just cast everything off that has a symbol of enslavement to anybody, including our husbands? So they again, just casting it off, you know, saying, I'm free, you know, I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to wear this thing anymore. And I started thinking about a modern example, or semi-modern, you know, I, I was going to use a little bit of the Me Too movement, but I actually thought it'd be better to go a little bit earlier, you know, back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where you had what's called the feminist movement, led by people like Gloria Steinman, and and, Steinman and uh, uh, like Oprah, and even, even Hillary Clinton, different people like that, who would be considered feminists. And one thing that happened in the 60s, some of you may be old enough to remember it, is this, this basically a, a, a symbolism that showed women that are cho- told that they are now free from the enslaver demand, and they would, what they would do was burn their bras. Anybody remember the women burning their bras? In case you didn't, I thought I'd show you a picture you know, of what was going on there back in the 60s. Here you see some women at a protest beginning to burn their bras. And now, if you squint real. Close and you you look back here on the right side. I can't see it. I think you see Debbie Debbie back there in the corner there with the. <laughs> she it's. Amen. There she is. <laughs> <laughs> if only I knew Debbie back then. Just kidding. She was. Anyway, so you had this. Protest movement coming across that women were basically saying they wanted to get rid of anything that somehow would be symbolic of their inequality with men. And so there's been a lot of these feminist movements down through history, you know, we know all the way up into the Me Too movement today, but none of those movements, as good as they are, can claim that they were the first. Because the first women's liberation movement was Christianity. And Jesus started it. If you know anything about the Gospels, Jesus was pro-woman. Totally pro-woman. And then with the start of the church, again, that continued on, and we even see it. And some people would think that Paul is a little bit chauvinistic, but the reality is he was one of the biggest advocates for women's equality, so much so that he, he penned it in writing. He penned this idea of equality in writing. In fact, we read about that in his letter to Galatians, where we read, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in common relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying, the gospel removed all the barriers between, again, Jew and non-Jew, between slave and free person, and between men and woman. we that in, in God's eyes, we are all equal status, especially when it comes to salvation. We're all equal. And so anyway, these women would know that, and so their logic would be, okay, so if we're totally equal, why would I continue to wear something that symbolizes, really, attachment or enslavery in some cases to a man? And that was a good question. That's a very good question and good logic. But as Paul talked about last week, actually, Austin talked about last week, the whole idea, he said, everything's permissible, but not everything is advisable. Or beneficial. Like last week we talked about it's, you know, it's, 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 it's permissible to do certain things, but it's not always beneficial to do it for the betterment of the, of the church. And he's saying basically the same thing here. He's saying, you know what? Yeah, you could take off the cap, but the problem is it sends a mixed message out to the culture. The culture starts seeing, you know, oh, this woman doesn't have a hat on anymore. And so she's free. She, maybe, she's, maybe she's having problems at home. Maybe she's, again, a little bit, a little bit too uh, loose, so to speak, with her sexuality. And so it was causing not only disruptions in the culture, but in the church too. And so there was a lot of chaos suddenly going on in the church. And it was damaging their witness to the community. And so Paul, being someone that's about keeping order and structure, he decides he's got to address this, he's got to deal with it before he gets totally out of hand. And the way he deals with this is not to go and, and use culture as the example and say, well, culture does this, so we should do that. We should follow the lead of culture. No, he says, you know, I can make a pretty good case from church history, from the Bible, basically. And that's what he does. And so in the, in the second verse or the, the third verse, he says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Notice that the word head is used 3 times in 3 different ways. Now there is discussion about whether this is the proper translation of the Greek word whether we head or is it source or whatever. It really doesn't matter because the bottom line is that this idea this this word here that we translate head has with it attached to it some sense of authority. Some sense of authority you cannot get past it, but I know that probably, especially in the age of the Me Too whatever, I think coming across a woman who coming across this passage might say, "Let's just go past this one. This is purely a cultural thing. Let's just drive on past this one and and get to some of the other verses." You could do that, but but really, again, I think you're you're, you're choosing, you're picking and choosing scripture, and the reality is, I think that most. People, most women wouldn't have trouble with the other two phrases that bracket this entire verse right here. You know, again, they would, they would know, they would agree that probably that the head of every man is Christ. I mean, I don't know any person, any Christian, that would say that's not true. In fact, Paul substantiates it quite well in his letter to Ephesians where he says God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. No problem with that. And then even the other side, where he says, basically, the head of Christ, and the first thing where he says, the head of every, I'm sorry, in the, head, the bottom, the last part, the head of Christ is God. Most people would not have a problem with that. They may be a little bit confused because, again, we are taught that we believe in the Trinity, one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that are co-equal. And so some would say, well, Paul's saying this, that the head of Christ is God, is he somehow saying that Christ is less than God? Not necessarily, because what he's doing is basically talking about the incarnated Christ, the Christ who, who, who left heaven, so to speak, and became flesh, and became subservient, really, to the Father for a purpose of take, going to the cross. In fact, we read about that in Paul's letters to the Philippians, where he says... Speaking of Christ is that who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was equal with God, but he chose to set that aside. He didn't see, oh I gotta hold on to this thing because I'm on a power trip and I don't want to lose my power. No, he became subservient. For the greater purpose of the Father. So, again, I don't think most people and most women would have any problem with those two kind of bookend sections, you know, that the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. But for some reason, that the part in the middle, you know, people get hung up on that the head of the woman is man, is man. Now, I would say that Debbie doesn't get hung up on that because she says, well, you might be the head, but I'm the neck that moves the head all around. <laughs> like a bobblehead. Yes, dear. I'm in charge. Yeah, I made up for it. I lost my spot again. But again, Paul's not making his stuff up on the fly. He's, he's just reiterating what he said elsewhere. And the same passages that some of you probably even used at your wedding. Maybe you weren't paying attention. You women weren't paying attention, but I guarantee some of you used this stuff. Wives, submit to your husbands so as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. I know some of you used this, allowed the pastor to say this at your wedding. you know. But again, you know we're not talking about an abusive situation. We're not talking about a, a power chip for the man. We're not talking about overexerting his authority. We're talking about, you know, a, a, a man, a husband who basically follows the pattern of Christ, the headship that follows the pattern of Christ, who we know died for the church. His wife. In fact, if we read on in this, it goes on to say, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he died for his wife. Now if you want to swap positions, go for it. But this is, again, man's responsibility is to die for their spouse. This is a big calling, this headship thing. It's not a power trip. It's again, it's a responsibility. Anyway, in this day and age, I didn't even want to talk. I didn't even want to preach the sermon because I know that words like obedience and submission and authority, you know, provide automatic pushback in certain people's heart. No way. How can I ever be free if I could, if I have to submit to anybody? Right? How could I ever be free if I have to submit to anybody? You know, but the thinking that freedom is freedom from all restraints. Isn't that the way we should operate in the world? Everybody should just be free to do whatever they want. And where does that take us? We want freedom until it begins to infringe on our own sense of freedom. Again, freedom does not mean free of everything, every sort of restriction. Actually, we can be more free, as we saw I think we're going to sing in the song is that, that we're the best place, the place where we're most free, is in the will of God, is in submission to God. And really, comes. what comes with submission to God is submission to others, to each other, in the church and throughout the church. In fact, there's a, there's a book some of you are familiar with. Richard Foster wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. He actually says that one of the disciplines, which you probably don't see in a lot of the other books on the spiritual disciplines, he says submission is is a spiritual discipline because it leads to freedom. And you say, how does it lead to freedom? Well, for one thing, he said, it's, it allows you to be free from the need to be right. We think that's a, that's a privilege, that's a burden. Always have to be right. Always have to be in control. Always have to have the last word. Is that freedom? That's enslavement. Again, Submission in the right context leads to freedom. Anyway, so whatever you believe about Paul, uh, this idea of headship, you know, Paul was pretty strong on it. And he actually uses, it, as we see, as an argument for why women in that day and age should keep the, the headdressing on. He goes on to say, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered dishonors her spiritual head, her husband basically what he's saying here. As a side note, when it says that, and every woman who prays or prophesies, that goes against the idea that some men have and some some churches have that a woman, ch- woman should never speak in church, they should never pray in church, they should never preach in church. And this passage makes it very clear that that's acceptable because that was going on back then. So he's not saying, like he says over in chapter 14, women should be silent because what he's dealing with really is people that were radical speaking out of turn he's not saying women cannot pray or prophesy or speech or speak because if that was the case we would never have women even singing songs we would all be quiet so again it's a it's a side note that lets us know that that women are expected to pray women are expected to prophesy which again in the modern language is kind of another name for preaching Taking the revealed word of God and, and giving it to other people, and so again that was perfectly, perfectly acceptable. Excuse me, Get some water. But what he's basically goes on saying again, he's using this for an argument for why women should keep their head coverings on, and then he gets kind of radical in his words. He kind of says, if you can't. If you're not going to keep your hat on, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just go ahead and just shave all your hair off. It seems crazy, but he says, if a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off, and if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. What's up with that? What he's saying is, in gentle terms, you're acting like a prostitute. And if you want to act like a prostitute, then look like a prostitute. Shave all your hair off, because temple prostitutes would have their head shaved off so they could be identified who they were and what they did. That's what he's saying. I and mean, those are strong words, right? But that's what he's basically saying. He's saying, you know, go all the way. If you want your freedom, then go all the way and look like a, like a temple prostitute is what he's saying. Anyway, he's, he continues building his case. And now he shifts to the idea of the created order, you know, the the, the order of man and woman created in in history. He goes on to say, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Again, a bunch of stuff that I didn't know what to deal with. But again, and really the scholars seem to be inconsistent in their views about this. What are you talking about here? But I guess when I like, it, the idea I like is that Paul recognizes in Genesis that both man and woman are created in the image of God. But women have really a one-up because they are also created, created to glorify their husbands. So they are created to glorify God and they are created to bring glory to their husband. And although everybody might not agree with it, I think the men in the room know that your wife, your wives, make you look good, right? I mean, look at some of you guys. Look at what's sitting next to you and look at yourself. Look at me. I'm cute, but she's beautiful. I mean, you laugh, but you know you men, if it wasn't for our wives, you would be slugs, Right? Sitting in front of TV, eating your bowl of Cheerios, clipping your toenails on the carpet, and watching ESPN for five hours. I always tell the women, they've settled. Again, women give men their sense of glory. Women glorify men. And so again, that's what Paul is trying to say. He says, this headship, you know, as a head, you need to understand that you woman, your wife has an exalted position, not only to reflect the glory of God, but to reflect the glory of man. Anyway, he begins winding us down, as I am now. He says, for this reason, in other words, what I just said, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Again, the sign of authority is the, is the covering. But what's, what's this about the angels? Again, I'm sure there's all sorts of interpretations of what he's talking about here, but some people believe, or, and I like this, this translation or interpretation, is that angels were always present when God was being worshipped. When God or Jesus was being worshipped, again, they were always present. We see it in Revelation. We see legions of, of angels around. So what he's saying, you know, for the reason I just gave you, plus the fact that you've got all these witnesses constantly around the worship environment, make sure that you're, you're doing it right. That you don't have this rebellious nature in your heart. You be humble. Be submissive. You know, not only to God, but ideally again to each other. But about this time, you know, I'm sure the men of Corinthian or Corinth, and probably even some of the men in this room are thinking, yeah, man, I'm 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 pretty pretty powerful. You know, you're women, you just gotta submit yourself, you know, I am the authority figure, I am the head. And some people, some men were probably thinking that, even today. And that's where Paul just kind of sets them straight. He goes on to say. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. In other words, woman might have been taken out of Adam's rib in Genesis, but every man, woman, everyone has since come from a woman, right? So he's saying, you know, there's a, there's a mutual Dependence. It's not an independence. It's interdependence between man and woman. It's a partnership. It's a complementary relationship, is what he's talking about here. And I like how the uh, writer, Eugene Peterson, says it again in the message. He, this last section, he summarizes it quite nicely. He says, Don't, by the way, and speaking for Paul, he says, Don't, by the way, read too much into the differences here between men and woman. Neither man or woman can go it alone or claim priority. Man was created first as a beautiful, shining reflection of God. That is true, but the head on a woman's body clearly outshines in beauty the head of her the, the head of her head, her husband. That's so why I didn't hear an Amen there. The first woman came from a man, true, but ever since then, every man comes from a woman, and since virtually everything comes from God anyway. Let's quit going through these who's first routines. I mean, those are just I just love that translation. Anyway, so that's how Paul deals with the this elephant in the room, and but Paul being Paul, he just feels like he's got to kind of nail the you know, hit the hit the nail with the the, with the hammer, whatever. He uses one final technique that is common in philosophical circles basically says, if anybody wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice nor do the churches of God. A little confusing here until again you look at the modern translation that says, I hope you're not going to be argumentative about this. All God's churches see it this way. I don't want you standing out as an exception. In other words, you're making a big deal of this, but you're fighting a losing battle. Because Church's practices have been practices for history. Don't follow the waves of culture. It's worked. Yes, there's a situation where there's abuse. All the, there's all sorts of reasons why you can say it doesn't work. But when done rightly, when truly there is this partnership, this mutual relationship between man and woman, codependent on each other, partnership, complementary relationship, it can work, it should work. And he's saying, it as, you know, don't be argumentative about this. He's not saying be passive and never bring up a topic, never question anything in the church, whether it be policy or doctrine or whatever. He's not saying that. He's just saying in the process of that, just make sure you examine your heart. Why are you doing this? Do you really, you know, you really want to make an answer? Do you really think it's a, get a good answer? Do you really think it's important? Or are you just trying to be argumentative? And Paul says, no, don't be argumentative about this stuff because this creates a division, unnecessary division, unnecessary gossip, In the church and creates a poor witness in the community. Anyway, I said a lot here, and like I said in the the beginning, is that, you know, when I went through this passage, I, I just knew that I'd end up with a lot of loose ends, spare parts, so to speak, a lot of unanswered questions. In fact, I listed four that some of you may still have. You know, first, what does this say about the role of women in the church? Is there anything a woman can't do in the church? You know, how does this apply to a single, the single woman? Or what if the husband doesn't assume the headship role? What if he really is a slug? He doesn't take headship. Or what if he's abusive? Those are all good questions that I, don't, I can't answer. I realize I didn't have the time to address all of those things, and maybe some future sermon I'd be able to do that. But in the meantime, you know, why don't you try to answer yourself? You're all smart people. You can read commentaries. You can read the Bible. Figure it out. And again, if you think there's an issue of how we're doing something or how we're treating women or whatever in this church, bring it to us. But don't just bring it and say the culture does this. This movement's out here, so we need to be like that movement. That's not going to work. You have to have a biblical argument because we cannot follow the winds of culture. Anyway, though I can't answer these questions, I can leave with you thoughts that I think we can glean from this passage. The first one being is that Head coverings are not mandatory, obviously. You know, some cultures actually still wear the head coverings, obviously. Even, even we have a Nepalese service, a Bhutanese service that meets Sunday night. The women still wear the head covering. Actually, the women and the men are separate. They sit on separate sides of the pew. Okay? But again, it's not mandatory because in the culture today, a woman wearing a head covering does not symbolize that she's under the authority of the man. It doesn't, it doesn't, does not, doesn't exist anymore. But the second thing that I think is really important again is that the equality of men and women before God. They stand in equal, they have an equal standing before God. As children of God, in relationship with God, they are equal and they both created to reflect the very image of God. Yet, for some reason, I didn't write the Bible, God decided to make man. Or have man assume a headship role why i don't know. ask him when you get there, but somebody had you know some of you work for businesses in partnerships, but somebody's the boss again it's it, it's somebody you have relationship you have functional relationships. you can have but you're not it doesn't make you any less than the person who's the boss you're still equal equal partners, but again somebody has to. Take the ownership of it. And so, again, although we are equal, functionally, God, for some reason, made men and women different. But again, having said that, the headship has to follow the pattern of Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his wife, the church, so to speak. Likewise, men have a very important role, and they are to take on, they are to also assume the headship. Not in a domineering or authoritarian way, but in humility, with a sense of service, a sense of a willingness to die for his wife or really anybody in the church. And that's a high, a high calling again. And also, that again, that we see that the men and women, they, they, they really, man and woman, it's a partnership. It's a complementary relationship that they both do their part to be able to advance the kingdom of God on earth. And again, we're reminded that we all have the responsibility to give honor to each other, especially our spouses. That we should not do anything inside the church by the way we say, what we say on Facebook, what we do out in the community, that should bring any sort of, that would bring any sort of dishonor to our spouse. That's a no-no. And then finally, again, if you want to be, if you don't agree with this, don't be contentious about it. Don't be argumentative about it. Do your homework. Take your case. Present it to the leadership. Give it up to God and let it go. Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this passage. It's a tough passage, but I pray that, again, that it uh, would settle well. And for those that didn't settle well with, Lord, again, I pray that uh, uh, each of us would examine our hearts to be able to know that, uh, again, that we are flawed human beings, that somehow we translate, interpret things differently. And so I I confess my own failings to navigate probably this correctly. But, Lord, again, I know that uh, your grace is upon us. So, Lord, I rely on that grace. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the diversity. My goodness, the diversity we have in this church is just amazing that people would have no other reason to be together, come together, again, the common bond of Jesus Christ. Because we truly see that we are equal before you. And again, that equality is enough to, to get rid of all racial divisions, ethnicity divisions, uh, gender divisions, whatever, Lord. And again, we can celebrate and thank you for that and continue to work together, again, for your common good, your common cause to build the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellbychristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.